You're listening to New Security Broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Angus Soderberg, and today's episode is the third in our special mini-series previewing the upcoming UN Climate Summit's new focus on relief, recovery, and peace. In the lead-up to the summit, we are sitting down with experts to discuss the implications of including peace as an explicit focus at this year's COP28 held in the United Arab Emirates, as well as what kinds of opportunities the conference can offer to move the needle on climate, conflict, and peace together. In this episode, we're doing something a little different. We are featuring a recent interview between Marissa Kerma, who is the director of the Middle East program here at the Wilson Center, and ECSP Global Fellow and environmental journalist Peter Schwartzstein. Their conversation touches on how the current war in Gaza is impacting the new focus on peace at COP28 and environmental peacebuilding efforts in the region more broadly. It's been over a month since Hamas's unprecedented attack on Israel and the ensuing Israeli bombardment of Gaza. To date, 1,200 Israelis have been killed on October 7th and more than 11,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza. The humanitarian conditions are worsening in the besieged strip, and tensions are at an all-time high, with the risk of escalation and contagion also rising every day. At the same time, at the end of this month, November, the United Arab Emirates is hosting COP28, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, the second consecutive year that this gathering is hosted in the Middle East sending a very strong message about the need for climate action in this region. However, this is also happening with the background of the Hamas-Israel war, as well as other geopolitical and geoeconomic dynamics at play. So to discuss this further, I speak today to Peter Schwartzstein, a Wilson Center Global Fellow, an environmental journalist and expert who has spent considerable time covering climate issues in the MENA region. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess the first question is, how do you see the current war in Gaza impacting COP28 and the spirit of COP28? There was also a focus on peace uh, for the first time. Yeah, I know there's a a bitter irony to to it all. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, one might imagine that this is perhaps a, a, a sideshow in kind of COP terms. I mean, both sort of Israel and Palestine are relatively small countries with relatively small economies and relatively minimal contributions to global emissions. This is not a Russia-Ukraine type scenario that by its very nature has to have enormous implications for global supply chains, global economies, and global emissions in general. But uh, there is indeed a, a pretty enormous potentially um, debilitating impact on on the upcoming COP uh, in that much of the most important work at a COP is the kind of diplomatic maneuvering that takes place in the months ahead of it. Um, And as we're seeing at the moment, most of the region's diplomatic energy, certainly, but but even much of the the wider Western and and global uh, diplomatic attention has been devoured by the fallout from from this war. And that is that is potentially fatal for, for the talks. This is the period when uh, states need to be pressured into kind of more ambitious targets in cutting their emissions, in living up to the pledges that they previously uh, agreed upon. 
the very fact, of course, that this year's COP is being held in a, a major fossil fuel producer at a time when we are doing much less on emissions mitigation than, than we are even uh, with kind of insufficient adaptation efforts has meant that this is the period when media, in addition to global diplomacy, ought to be uh, more fixated than ever in pressuring Western and regional governments uh, into kind of more ambitious targets and more ambitious pledges. And yet media too, for understandable reasons, is extremely fixated on on the war. So collectively, this is about as grim a preamble to a COP uh, as one could possibly hope to have. So beyond the... Um... Uh, diplomatic maneuvering that has to take place, of course, before, because a lot of these negotiations happened before between many of the participating governments. There are also civil society organizations and other environmental groups around the world, but particularly from the region, that um, will be participating. So how will this also impact the way that they um, not only whether they attend or participate, but um, whether some of the projects that they've been working on, particularly in the region, that have sort of used the climate challenges as a means to come together and and just start to um, start dialogue. How will that impact some of these efforts? Uh, in in no ways good. Um, I mean, if you're, you're talking as I, as I believe you are about the, the likes of the Eco, of Eco Peace Middle East, the likes of our advanced institute that have kind of leveraged kind of shared environmental and climate troubles and use them as a means of trying to bring states together. This is, this is terrible. This is a period when they are having to kind of lay as low as possible, kind of batten down the hatches and hope for better times. In part, of course, because the degree of toxicity between kind of Israel and many of its neighbors, and particularly Israelis and Palestinians, is not conducive to doing anything. But even more than that, in a in a in a climate of, of conflict, one can't push ahead with many of the kind of tangible, mutually beneficial on the ground infrastructure projects that these kinds of organizations have been instrumental in spearheading. You can't build solar fields in the in the Jordanian desert for both Palestinian and Israeli benefit as the Emiratis and Jordanians have collectively planned for quite some time. You can't push ahead with the construction of desalination facilities on the Mediterranean for uh, Jordanian and Palestinian benefit as kind of both people so desperately need. So from the point of view of, of actually building things, this is putting them on hold. But just from the point of view, even more importantly than that, of cultivating that kind of environment of trust which is required to to push ahead with environmental peace building schemes this is 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 generating kind of intense animosity and and a very different set of emotions to to those required at a at a time as pivotal as this of course and, if, and emotions are um at an all-time high on all sides how do you think or do you think that this platform will um somehow be used or utilized by the host government as well as other participating governments to also make calls for not necessarily a ceasefire, but to sort of elevate the theme of peace and peaceful coexistence and cooperation, precisely for the reasons you laid out, that when there's conflict in the background um, impacting not only Israelis and Palestinians, but people across the region, given you know the the risks of escalation, do you think that this conversation can be had at COP, or will that just completely hijack the agenda that has been set by the host? 
I hope so. I mean, I hope that the host government and every government within the region and further afield is able to appreciate that as, as horrible as this current situation is, that it is not the only looming danger. Uh, this COP takes place against the backdrop of really fast intensifying climate stresses, which, as we know, are striking the Middle East and North Africa with even greater fury and even greater speed than they are most other parts of the world. And the very reason that we have a, a kind of planned peace and security component at this COP is that we know with ever greater certainty, not least because of the work that um, kind of all of us at, at, in the Environmental Change and, and Security Program at Wilson and so many other places have done, that we know that those climate stresses and kind of wider environmental degradation plays a, a pretty significant role in these kind of mushrooming numbers of, of conflicts, large and small, that are breaking out um, mm -hmm. in game, ever greater numbers across the Middle East and Africa and, and other parts of the world. And so it will be extremely difficult for, for the organizers in Dubai and everybody else to kind of keep their collective eye on the ball at a time when, when people's attentions are so understandably drawn elsewhere. But this is a, a danger a, in, in both human security and, and kind of physical security terms that will create suffering on a scale that, again, in the grand scheme of things, will make that in, in the Gaza Strip at the moment look kind of meager by comparison. Uh, there's already a lot of kind of misery to, to kind of strike a grim note that's already baked in with the kind of 1.5 or more degrees of warming that we're on track for. But were we to go towards the more than two degrees of Celsius of warming that kind of currently looks like it's on the cards, then the, the implications for, for peace and security, particularly in this this region, will be will be unimaginable. As the world gathers uh, or prepares to gather in Dubai for this particular, you know, for COP28, what do you hope for in terms of the final outcome, you know, the the results? I'm sure the goals that were set before might not necessarily be achieved as planned, given the geopolitical and geoeconomic context. But what you what do you think would be the best case scenario for this COP? I mean, to, to look around at many of my friends and colleagues in the environmental community, it feels that kind of expectations have hit such a low, and in fact, such a low even before October the 7th, that kind of a, a cop passing in a kind of somewhat cordial manner would be deemed a relative success. But mm -hmm. what I really hope to see, and what I think would be deemed a genuine success, is an agreement to rein in, or at least some variation of an agreement to rein in fossil fuel use to a greater extent than we've seen thus far. Uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27 last year, we had some success on climate adaptation, that is kind of helping kind of many of the poorer, uh, worst afflicted countries in the world to adapt to some of the climate kind of consequences that are coming that way. But we need much, much more work on climate mitigation, that is reining in the, the, the emissions use that we know beyond all doubt is primarily responsible for that warming. Now that will be difficult even in a, a non kind of Gaza mm -hmm. war type situation. Uh, there was a lot of understandable fury in the in the months and years leading up to this event from many poorer countries who feel quite correctly that richer parts of the world are not living up to their commitments. Uh, and as a consequence, there has been something of a fixation, again, an understandable one on their part, on the funding that they feel ought to be coming their way to, to deal with, with these looming crises. But I fear, and, and this is far from a unique fear, that we have slightly lost sight of mm -hmm. the, the absolute necessity 
of ensuring that this already very serious crisis that will come from the 1.5, 1.8 degrees or so of warming that appears to be baked in, uh, that that doesn't become a, a kind of a, a, an amount of warming that, that perhaps no degree of climate adaptation funding will be capable of surmounting. So we, we really do hope beyond the, the expectations of many of my, my colleagues that this will be the, the event where that truth is, is hammered home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then one last question, because you talked about how the media is, of, of course, also sucked into the cycle of violence. And so um, perhaps not enough coverage will um, will zoom into what's happening at COP. Or if it does, it will constantly go back to that dimension. Um, the media awareness and just raising awareness in general about climate change and how it's impacting communities has also been a challenge before even the war. I mean, we've seen also multiple um, conflicts that 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 still hold in Syria, in Yemen, in Libya. And that, of course, adds further to the challenge of addressing a lot of these issues. But how can people in the region be convinced that they need to focus on these climate challenges when there are so many other priorities from their perspective, especially with this current backdrop? I mean, yeah, that you you get at the root of the one of the single biggest challenges. I mean, for a while, climate change has been deemed uh, a crisis that is important but not urgent, mm-hmm. as so many of us in the the wider environment and climate community have, have tried to to illustrate. It is both important and urgent. But as you say, at a time of of conflicts, uh, it can be it can be hard to to get that message to resonate. Now, some of the things that so many of us try and do is to sort of illustrate how tightly bound up climate change is with mm-hmm. those prioritized issues, try and illustrate that climate and environment isn't just kind of birds and bees and butterflies as it has sometimes been presented. It's the air we breathe, it's the food we eat, it's the water we drink. And in a conflict setting, it in some way, shape or form is a contributor to so many of these conflicts, large and small, that are that are raging across the region. So if we can get home to, to a greater extent than perhaps we've succeeded in the past, mm-hmm. that this is a priority issue that is intimately bound up with the headline stories, then one might hope to kind of enjoy a greater degree of success than we have thus far. I mean, one of the other great tragedies is that this was a, a summer of such climate horror across so much of the Northern Hemisphere, I mean, including here in, in Greece with extreme heat waves and prolific wildfires, that it seemed that that was where some of the kind of momentum was coming from. Like you've had more and more people across both rich countries and poor countries who are feeling on an almost day-to-day basis that things were beginning to spiral out of control and, and spiral out of control in, in ways that, that people were, were obviously not enjoying and, and that they could see were kind of ought to be rising towards the top of their priority list, no matter how many other crises there might be raging around. And so, I mean, not that there's ever a, a good time for a... A horrible, horrible conflict, as with this one, but it's arguably come at an especially grim time, given that it is just distracted from what is almost, without doubt, the single most important issue to to face the vast majority of us on on this planet. Peter Schwartzstein, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on Twitter at NewSecurityBeat and visit NewSecurityBeat.org.